Here we go. Well, Stuart, um, the first thing I have here is just, just for us to check in, man, like just uh, share something from our week. We're, we're talking about, well, I've said uh, relation, race, relationship, and reconciliation and right. all the interplay and connectivity of, of all that. Um, where do you want to start? Do you just want to jump into that or do you want to share something from the week each? And we're waiting for Stretch to get on here too. So that's going to happen. That's going yeah. to be disruptive. We're going to have to pivot then. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think, I think, I mean, you know, the, this conversation, I think it's important for, for who would listen to this to know that we were planning to have this conversation before the recent events that has happened in the U.S. Yeah. Yep. And um, the recent events just kind of heightens the, the seriousness of this issue. Um, and, you know, it, in some ways it, um, it's an emotional thing to talk about, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping we can do so in a, in a graceful and honest way. And maybe the point isn't so much for us to offer a whole bunch of solutions, but to kind of just talk about this in a way that hopefully is constructive, you know? And I think the, the fact that we are having the conversation, uh, you know, South African, colored South African, and, you know, you Midwest boy, is that how you would consider yourself? Indiana, originally. <laughs> you know, um, and, and Stretch, who knows where he falls on the spectrum, you know, but I, I, think, I, think, it's, I think it's On important the white that, spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important that we kind of just, by virtue of that, I think there's something to be said for, for even the ability to have this kind of conversation. And I, and I don't know if this conversation is happening enough within church circles, within Christian circles, uh, I had a conversation with a, um, a sociologist who studies issues of race and stuff. And the first thing she said to me was, man, I, I don't get invited to talk about this stuff within the Christian community a lot. And that's just shocking. Right. And so I know on the other, on the other side of this, people are like, well, we're, we're tired of talking, you know, we need some action. Uh, and so I understand that there's, there's kind of a, a sense of, um, what's the word I would use? People are exasperated by talking that goes nowhere. And on the other hand, there's talking that is not happening in places it needs to happen so that action can come. And I think the church in particular needs to pay attention to this conversation in more than just, we want to sit at the table and talk. We want to see where this conversation will take us. Well, you know, I am, I'm bothered by, an, an, another uh, black man that's been shot. It's very, it's different this time in that he has not been killed and it looks like he's going to make a recovery. And then we're going to hear his side of the story. When's the last time that happened? Right. Right. That's different. That's different in this scenario. Um, but it, it almost feels like an, another black guy got shot. It was in the news and we were not that far removed from George, George Floyd. That was this, this, this flashpoint. Um, and then, and, and then there's um, been other killings since then. Right. I can't even remember the names. 
Right. Um, but it feels like to me, what bothers me is it feels like to me, it's just part of the news now. Right. We report this and then we move on to the next thing and then somebody else gets, gets killed. And it's just become a normal part of, of the flow, almost totally different, but almost like school shootings. It's like in, in the United States, the school shootings happen and then you'd be like, that's horrible. Like, how, why is this happening? And then the next one would happen, you know, a couple months later. And why is this ha happening? Totally different, totally different issues involve, involve firearms. But we want to talk about the race relationship here. But as a, as a, as a white guy and as a white pastor, that doesn't have responsibility um, overseeing a congregation, but a part of a congregation volunteer. Um, I'm not hearing anybody talk about this. And I know some pastors, you listen to their sermons and it's like, uh, is anything besides the news headlines guiding their <laughs> biblical arc? Um, and then other pastors, they so stick to the text and the, you know, just, line by line in scripture that you wonder if they ever like do they even get the newspaper to know what a headline is so that they could contextualize it for their people within the flow of whatever you know liturgical everybody's got a liturgy man yeah everybody you know whether it's the sermon plan that they made up on their six month you know weekend away with jesus where they made up all the topics they're going to talk about they're not deviating from that no matter what happens in the news right but right. I'm, so the the question i'm i'm getting to here for you as a lead pastor in a church is um, how, how do you traverse that where you've got a plan to preach and another black person is shot by the police and, and people are thinking about that. People are talking about it and you're coming to the pulpit on Sunday. What do you do with all that? Well, that's a great question. The first thing I would say is, I wish people were talking about it and I wish people were thinking about it. Um, I think what you said earlier is just becoming more and more true is that at first we pay attention, enough of this stuff happens and we care less. We pay attention less. We don't watch it the same way. And there's many factors that play into this. I remember a wildlife, um, you know, conservation group that wanted to draw attention to the, uh, uh, the killing of African elephants. Their campaign started off with like showing graphic images of what happens when poachers get a hold of an elephant to get its ivory. And their thought was, if we show the graphic nature of this stuff, people are going to be so moved and they're going to give. And here's what they found. They found that they had an initial bump in, in, in people giving but the numbers went significantly lower than when they started this new campaign, simply because over time people got used to the graphic images and they tuned it out. And sensitized, became callous. And here's what I would say, the people for whom this thing doesn't go away are the people most affected by this reality. And so the Christian community has to be particularly aware of what it chooses to care about and how long it chooses to care about things. And I've already got pressure in my own context in different ways for people who would say things like, you know, I know that racial issues are an issue for you, Stu, right? And, and look at me, right? <laughs> I'm the kind of person that looks like some of the men that are being killed on the streets in the United States. 
And so it makes sense for you, Stu, to be concerned about this. But, you know, there are other Christian things we should be concerned about as well. In fact, uh, you know, the pressure is there for pastors in different ways to address this issue in a particular way and to not address it. And so for me, you know, who's part of a Wesleyan tradition and when we believe in scriptural holiness, it is impossible to separate holiness from justice. It is impossible to do that biblically and scripturally speaking. However, theologically speaking and speaking in terms of churches itself, we have managed to do that very well. We've managed to make our spirituality about a piety that has nothing to do with caring for the least of these. And we are selective in what that means as we move forward. So I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, on the edge here. And uh, um, I, I, I feel frustrated. I, I'm angry. I'm tired of talking about things and I'm wondering how to lead. Um, this is somebody's son. You know, this is somebody's yeah. father, uh, dad, this is a dad, you know, like, I just don't get it. I don't get it as much as we'd like to pontificate on a whole bunch of sociological reasons why things are the way they are at the end of the day, unless we can begin to recognize that the way in which we respond to these things as Christians says a lot about what we believe it means to be Christian. Right. Right. And, and we got we to gotta kind of pay attention. I, I don't know, man. I, I'm sorry. I'm, it's, I, yeah. No, don't apologize. I mean, this is, this is why we're having, this is why we're talking is to, is to get this stuff out of our own heads and, and hearts and, and in a place that we know that we can trust with, with, with each other. But I, I, I have these conversations with people um, they're Christians. Some of them are uh, pastors, and um, somehow the Christian part gets co-opted by the political part. And so, if if anything, if if there's a riot because a black man is shot, then it's 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 Black Lives Matter's fault, and that's that's not right and that's not okay and i'm going yeah but a black guy was shot and i don't think it doesn't matter what the reason is um i mean the the reason does matter but i have yet to see a reason that was that 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 was justified that has come to the national light and the reason we're upset about it is because it's like why did they why did they shoot that man why did they shoot that 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 lady in her own apartment right um was Brianna Taylor. Yeah. She's a paramedic, right? Yeah. 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 And, and I talk with them and it just quickly goes to this politicized reasoning, like almost like this, there's this coordinated political attack that apparently I'm not seeing as I'm focusing on a black man getting shot. And then the way that, that, that um, the, the politics respond in a way that they don't like and or not that's that's the wrong way to say that they see through such a politicized lens they're not asking about what would jesus do how would jesus respond to this what's the christian response here what what's what's the kingdom response 
Right. It's all, all politicized and all balled up into who they are and their identity and their faith. They're not teasing those different things out to realize that they're not congruent. They right. can't work together. You, right. you, you, can't, you can't lump a black man being shot by the police in with the violent uh, response of a, uh, of, I mean, the Black, black Lives Matter, it's not just a statement. It's, be, it's become a movement and that's on a spectrum, just like all the movements and sex and things and clubs that I'm a part of. Right. And um, just, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I am totally rambling. I'm, I'm not, I'm no, not making no. sense, but it, 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 frust, it frustrates me yeah. that it's like this happened, but this is how they're responding and that's not okay either. And this is a thought that I had today and then I'll, 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 um, I'll shut up for a second. <laughs> Um, cause I want to hear what you have to say. If there's any sense to be made of this is, man, I'm not down for rioting. I'm not down for looting. I'm not down for fires and destruction of property and everything, but people in power with privilege are upset because this racial, uh, divide has festered to the point that they have to deal with it and they notice the infection finally, and they call out the symptoms of it instead of the complete systematic malady of racism that boiled over in this one point. Um, of course it's not okay. Right. But you're pointing to the wrong brokenness. That's the easy one. Right. That right. didn't get there overnight. Why are people responding immediately that way? Well, first of all, that's not what right. Jacob, Jacob Blake's parents or family, or they're saying that he would want to have happen. They're not associating with that. But I heard an interview with the, with the mom today that said, or it was the sister that said, um, this isn't just him. Right. This is, this is George Floyd. This is Breonna Taylor. The, these are all these names that have happened. Right. You know? and, and something else that really struck me um, pertaining to, to George Floyd recently was this. They said, it was like, uh, somebody placed a phone call 401 years ago, and uh, it was answered in 2020. And people said, oh, we're going to listen now. We're going to pay attention. This has been going on. Right. <laughs> it's not history. It's living history today that's a continuation of, of all of those killings, of all of those murders that are part of a system that's got different representation and different structure to it today. So that, sorry, that's my rant. rant. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think what has happened, what I've noted is, is that, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been a lot of, um, you know, posturing around critiquing the movement to the point where the question that the movement raises is whether Black lives actually matter as far as policing is concerned in, in, in terms of equal opportunity. Uh, you know, and, and I can't for the life of me understand how a Western country like the United States, as advanced as it is in both its political structure, in terms of education, um, is unable, how people are unable to actually ask the right questions and to critique the right things. Let me, let me put it anecdotally. anecdotally. People are upset about rioting more than they are upset about men who are dying 
for reasons that other men don't have to die for. And I am profoundly, I'm profoundly saddened, not by the broader cultural response to this, but by Christians who do the very thing that I'm describing. I, I, I don't know, like, you know, I think about life in terms of my Jesus, my love for Jesus, you know, and, and, and when, I, when I hear Jesus ask questions like, who is my neighbor? Mm. You know, that, that profound parable of the Samaritan, you know, the way in which Jesus tells that story is to literally choose the hero of the story to be the very person that justifiably by the cultural norms and religious norms of the day could be excluded and could be ignored. And if Jesus is so strong about this idea that to be his is to see the world and hence to see our black brothers and sisters as our neighbor, to love them as one loves oneself, I just don't know what it's going to take for the church to own this commission, what it means for the church to pick up its voice, raise its voice, and to actually do something that is more than just posture and pontificate about these matters. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, Keep I, going. I, 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 know that, I know that for me, growing up in a racially segregated culture, uh, I'm always having to watch that I don't read things like racism or bigotry into situations that they are not present. But listen, let's just be honest. Let's call it what it is. Let's call it what it is. People have become comfortable with viewing other people as having less value. Yeah. Period. And again, Kenny, we, 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 you know, you and I, we're, we're just guys who love Jesus, love our family, love our, love, love our friendship. We're not pretending here in this conversation to have the answers. But what I, what I do know is this. Um, there's no way that I can live my life with integrity as a follower of Christ and continue to live with ignorance to the realities that our world is going through. That's and, right. and I want to talk about, like, I'd like to talk about how do we actually help one another to be more than just spectators to this stuff. That's, yeah. that, that's, I need where, that. I, that's where I'm at. Uh, I know that's maybe where you're at as well. Yeah, I, I, I need that. I mean, what, what do I do? I mean, there was a rally right after George Floyd in downtown Boise. Right. And I could have gone to that. Right. I didn't. Um, what would I have accomplished in going to that in, in Boise, Idaho? That's kind of one of the questions that I was asking. Um, it would probably make, it would, it would lull me into thinking that I was doing something and I'm not discrediting people that were going to that right. because they, they, they just were compelled to go be a, a, a part of that. But where are we today with that? Um, what, what, am I, what am I doing? What can I do on an ongoing basis as a, a white um, guy in his 40s in the United States, um, a part of the Nazarene church, 
called to be a pastor as a husband and as a father, what can I do on an ongoing basis that's, that's going to make a difference in combating systemic racism? From my from yeah. my little corner, from, yeah. from my and I'm not saying this is a point of despair. I'm not saying like, what can I do? I'm just yeah. saying, oh, what what? And I'm asking General Stu. I'm not putting you on a spot saying, Stu, yeah. you've got the answer. Tell me what to do. But what what I I want to do, and so the only thing that I know to do, and I can do more. I, I just I don't know what to do. Is is to pursue friendships with people that are going to teach me that there's different perspectives and worldviews and that I have a lot of blind spots and that I choose to live into that and, and personally confront that and not make that somebody else's job. Right. <laughs> to get woke. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, let, let me, let me start off by saying this. I think, I think like, you know, in the spirit of wanting to kind of take this somewhere, the first thing I would say is it actually begins with just an honest look at ourselves. The reality is growing up in a segregated culture as a person of color, I could very much take the posture of racism was done against me, bigotry happened towards me, systemic racism kept me from opportunities. And all of that is true. But what it also did was that it created within me prejudice bigotry and racist actions mm. and thoughts. And so the first thing I think that anyone has to do, in particular as Christians, is to confront our own bias, confront our own bigotry. I'm tired of hearing people say, I don't see color, <laughs> right? I'm, ti I'm tired of, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm, just being, I'm just being very honest with you. I'm tired of people, in particular in my context, to saying things like, this is not a problem for us Canadians. The, the, the history of Canada, um, the, the way in which Indigenous people are still marginalized, and the history of residential schools within the Canadian context shows that Canada too has a history of segregation, of marginalization, of systemic racism. That's just the reality. And so I think if we're going to be like, okay, let's do something about this, let's begin with kind of trying to get into the space honestly. I need you to help me uh, see myself more honestly. And this is one of the ways that I think our biases are exposed. We need to trust one another to be honest enough with each other. You know, yeah. that, that, that aunt and that uncle that sits at the kitchen table and says something derogatory about this group or that group, you know, we need to be able to say, whoa, hang on a second, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it does begin on the micro level. It does begin individually. And, and before I even want to think about systemic change, I think people have to actually recognize that unless they have the ability to see what needs to change in them, are they going to have the desire and will to see what needs to change in the world? And as long as we operate with this ignorance that it's not me, I'm not a part of the problem. I'm going to distance myself from it, man. I'm a good person. I know Stu. Stu's a black guy. I must be okay, right? Uh, I, I, unless we come to the point of kind of going, I have to search my own heart and mind on this stuff. And I'm speaking very particularly to Christians because I don't think I can hold the same standard for somebody who doesn't profess Jesus as Lord. But yeah. for us as Christians, we need to kind of take that honest first step and say, you know, let's start with us. The second thing I want to say is this. Why, why do we think it's possible 
to actually have um, a society that lives at peace with one another and shares life together in a meaningful, constructive way, when within the church, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. One of the things for me is, you know, as a Christian, is I'm just going, who am I worshiping with? Who is in my circle? Who is in my life? And I know there's many sociological responses here going to vary from, well, you know, to geographically and language and culturally, people like to be with people like themselves. And it's kind of wonderful to have that. But I got to be honest with you. I feel more and more that the church in a growingly diverse culture needs to start reflecting the ethnic socioeconomic diversity of our world. And we need to stop, uh, stop, stop uh, uh, promoting uh, you know, this segregated way of being Christian. Yeah. You know, so, so, I mean, I've got more to say, but, but that's maybe where I'll stop. And, and just kind that's of why we're doing it. <laughs> I, I'm glad that you brought up the, the, the good Samaritan, the story right. uh, a little bit, a little bit ago. I mean, we do a lot of things with that from preaching and from teaching and Bible right. studies and, and stuff. But the, the, the shoot off here for me from that story is that, that somebody might go, I, well, I don't have any a white, another, you know, another white guy might go, I don't have any black friends. I don't have any Brown friends. I live in a very right. homogeneous area. Um, you know, we've got a, there's a black guy at work. He's my friend. Um, there, I have a, you know, Hispanic guy that, that uh, I've, you know, I, I, I play basketball with, you know, at the gym, whatever. But they're not like real, they're not sharing life together kind of, kind of friendships, even though we live so far apart, Stuart, I, I really feel like you and I have led each other into our lives. We've shared some journey. That's something that God did though. That happened in the church, through the church that happened in, in the spirit. And it's something that we had to be open to, but there's this friendship that came. It's not like we live near each other or anything. The story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus does something there um, that these Jewish people weren't hanging around with Samaritans. They didn't have Samaritan neighbors. There wasn't like, you know, the black guy that moved in next door or I moved into a neighborhood and I've got, you know, these people from, you know, immigrants from another country and they're there and now we're friends. You had to go out of your way to be involved with the Samaritan. The Samaritan was traveling from one place to another. Right. There were people that were really common in that story in the first part and the Samaritan comes along and, and actually, actually helps out. So I don't think that there's an excuse for me or for anybody else, for a Christian, for a pastor to say, well, we're not around people right. that aren't like us. So we can't practice that. Jesus doesn't care. <laughs> Jesus addresses the attitude of the heart in this situation that provokes the people to think differently about who their default hero is in the story. Right. Who's the person that's actually, they, he makes them think about someone that they couldn't imagine being capable of compassion to, to like help them, uh, un, un, like to reveal their right. implicit bias right, and to move them one notch toward being more compassionate towards anyone that they're around. Absolutely. That's what I'm kind of seeing and hearing in the story in a different way as I come with this lens of race relationship. And I just, how, how, like, how small child is it that we go, this color is good and this color is bad? I like purple. I don't like pink. Right. 
Right. I mean, and we do that like we're, like we're crayons. Well, you know, I think I love what you just said because it kind of pushes me, pushes me back on my own kind of, you know, justification for why people or the rationale why people say, you know, I don't really have diversity in my life because my life, you know, I, I live it in this community or in that community. And that's because you're privileged. That's why you don't have diversity in your yeah, life. And I think that's what privilege is. Privilege is I don't have to deal with certain things, right? Uh, if I choose not to. Or and, you automatically get certain things without ever having to earn them. Right, right. But, but there seems to be also this kind of symbolic barrier. So, so I know I, I was listening to somebody talk to me about where they live and they literally described it as if I go across this road, that's the black community. And if I stay on my side of the road, that's the white community. You're in the wrong part of town. And so geographically, they're actually in the same region, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there's this there's symbolic barriers to connection. So I, I think that in life itself, people have more mental barriers to where they go and how they socialize that actually becomes a justification to live a very much a, a life that doesn't have to go across the boundary or the border. And if you were to think about Jesus's ministry, the times he crosses in intentionally, he's going into spaces that justifiably he didn't have to go into. Yeah. So, so when we talk about, you know, the Christian faith and we, we, whenever you start to hear, Hey, it, it's kind of better for, you know, that group, <laughs> you know, it's, it's better for them. Which means it's better for me. Exactly. That's privilege. I've heard, I've heard that all my life. I've heard that all my life. I, if you go to the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg and you hear the, the founders, the creators of Apartheid speak biblically about how good this is, you know, you, you might even be moved by their impassioned plea for how allowing people to function within their own, you know, context and culture and so on is just a wonderful thing that God wants. But what is not said in that is that it's never all things equal and it's not done for the right intention as a mm. part that would prove itself, right? And, and so for me, like I, I, I just think there's the symbolic kind of barriers that people live and justify who they know and, and who they're going to engage with. And, and until we start to kind of break down that, you know, which is what I think Jesus wants to do when, he's, when he answers the question of who's my neighbor. I think all of us want to just have this question answered. Who am I responsible for? I hope it's people like me. You know, who am I responsible for loving? I hope it's somebody that will love me back. You know, mm -hmm. who am I responsible for caring about? I hope it's somebody that will uphold my values in the way in which I see the world. And until we allow that deconstruction to happen that says I cannot be at peace until I actually live at peace with people unlike myself. I cannot be at peace until I start to care about the things that I can choose not to care about. Will we actually begin to look more like Jesus Christ? I think we're, I think, Kenny, just be honest with you. I think we had just a critical turning point. Like I, I think this is the opportunity that the church needs to step into in a much more bold way than, than just kind of bemoaning that the world is at war. Well, I don't think, I, I wish there was a risk of the church leaning into this hard with a pivot. 
in, in the United States right now, and I'm just talking about my perspective from one little town in the United States. Right. Um, as a U.S. citizen, people are so polarized with partisan politics. They're not thinking about the kingdom. And even if they're thinking that their partisan allegiance has to do with their Christian faith, with their faith and relationship with Christ, they're, they're choosing to make, we're choosing to make, I'll put myself in there, use a plural pronoun, so many both uh, conscious and unconscious compromises to what we know to be Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Right. Um, so many like mental, emotional, faith gymnastics right. to justify partisan political uh, allegiance that there is no risk. That's already taking up too much energy. Plus I got to go to work or I got this responsibility. I don't have, I, I don't know what to do with that. So I don't know how, I don't, I don't know what to do with racial relationships. I don't know what to do with another black person being shot by the police. So I'm not going to do anything with it because I've got other things that I need to take care of. And we got to make sure that we get the right person to become the next president of the United States. Cause that always works out for people of faith and changes everything. Right. No. Right. So I wish there was a chance that the church could actually do something about this right now. But I think that in the United States, the church is so smitten with individual perspectives on politics, human politics, that the kingdom politic is, has, has no chance of being tapped into and, and, and released. And I, that's, that's a horrible thing to say. Right. Well, Kenny, just to be frank with you, like, <laughs> I mean, part of the reason somebody asked me a very startling question once, and they said, why are you still part of the denomination you're part of? And <laughs> it startled me uh, for a number of reasons, right? And one of the implications was, I don't, I don't necessarily see that people like you really are kind of a part of this denomination that that was this was many years ago and i i'm glad to say we've kind of grown in diverse leadership and stuff with with within north america in particular but i think part of why i'm a part of the denomination i am is because it has had a a global missiology right it's had yeah. a it's had a sense of the greatness of the calling of christ like yeah. You know, we we understand when we read scripture that this great master plan, this meta narrative is for all people. That's right. And so for me, the challenge these days is between what we believe scripturally and how we actually live that out and not just thinking about the other as across the water. I think in the United States is a watershed moment of recognizing the missionary endeavor to the United States has to open people's eyes to recognizing the need that the church has to be saved from itself in this area. And 
I don't know, you know, the 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 the, the pivot that needs to happen. I think you're you're absolutely right. It's monumental, and it's it's going to make more people unhappy than happy. I feel it, and I feel like I'm at least you know a few ripples away from the epicenter of stuff, but I feel it very strongly here. People don't want to be made uncomfortable. People want their faith to be about them. <laughs> you know, people want their worship experience to be comfortable and, 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 and not challenge them. And people want to care about the things that they can choose to care about. So what am I saying? I'm saying, quite honestly, it's going to require courageous leadership um, from men and women of faith in our denomination, in Christian churches, who, who are going to have to be able to not only articulate the hope of Jesus Christ that is to reach everyone, but is going to challenge the comfort and the status quo in such a way that we cannot be comfortable until this issue of uh, racial injustice is systemically addressed, until it is no longer a part of raising black boys, uh, telling them how to act when they are pulled over by somebody who is supposed to protect them and not see them as a threat. I, I, I've got a black son. And this for me is not just something that I'm choosing as a hobby horse, right? This is not something I'm kind of going, I'm passionate about it because I think, you know, all lives should matter. Uh, I, I, I'm passionate about it on a personal level. Like I'm looking at why should my son be raised in a way to recognize that because of his color, there's some extra things he has to make sure he does in order to survive right. in our society. This, Sad, is not, this is not something I can afford to, to kind of, you know, not talk about. I'm sorry, man. Like I, I yeah, I, I don't feel like I'm very, very, uh, very structured in what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's a lot. We're of doing emotion. it, man. We're, we're, it's a lot we're, of emotion. No, this is, this is what we're going for. This is, yeah. Stu, this is why, this is why we both wanted to share. And I wanted, I wanted to hear from you. You know, I've got, um, there's a, there's a pastor at one of our Nazarene churches here where I live. He's a worship pastor at the church. Now I'm, I, I would say he's, he's my friend. We're more acquaintances. He's black. Uh, he's from the Midwest. Right. And I've had conversations with him where he tells me where, where I live here, he does not go out driving as a black man after a certain time of night. Right. Because he knows he will be profiled. Right. By systemic racism, not because that police officer is necessarily racist, but because it's so perforated, everything that we've done, that he will be profiled by a police officer as a black man in a car driving at night and he will be pulled over. And if, if he's out after night, he has someone that he's with follow him home. Right. Right. I don't have to think like that as a white man anywhere right. I go. Right. And I've, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm trying to allow myself to be confronted by things that I don't ever have to think about. Right. On where I'm, where I'm racist. This is, I, I think people don't want to deal with this because it's really, really hard work. You really have, 
we have no idea the depths of how affected we are by our bias of of black and white but especially as white as as white people right and someone's going to listen to this one of the four people that listen to this podcast and and they're going to get upset about what i just said and say but that's not me and i know that when i say that that's not me that i'm actually acting out on being implicitly biased right within a degree of racism right right so the the I, I, it hadn't even occurred to me that you would need to talk to your son about specific things being of mixed race, um, but because he's not just clearly white, right? Beca because he has mixed ethnicity. Stu, it's never occurred to me as your friend that you would have to do that. I've thought about that with other people. I've heard that from other people. Um, I'm not colorblind. I have in, in implicit bias. I have blind spots. Uh, maybe this is one of them. But man, I'm I'm sorry that you have to do that, and I'm sorry that he has to have that that conversation. Yeah, and 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 I am I am devastated that he. The sex conversation is hard enough. You got to talk <laughs> to him about race. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, and I'm devastated that he has to hear that from me. You know, I, I, we don't live in South Africa. He's Canadian, born and raised here. Um, and, and, and yet, here we are still having these kinds of conversations. And, um, you know, I, many years ago when you and I first met, and we had a, a wonderful friend who, who taught us scripture in such an enriching way as we wrote seminars together. But one of the, one of the things that, that John Middendorf kind of, shared with you and me over the years is is you know whatever we put in front of what it means to be a follower of jesus will define our christianity and um you know there, there, there is a sense in which um and, and i know this is an oversimplification but if jesus isn't lord whatever we put in front of him will define what kind of jesus he becomes and you know people people seem to lack the circumspection to recognize that Christianity is ultimately saying Christ comes before everything else, including my national loyalty and That's right. my flag. And I was thinking about this today, man, with those conversations. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so, you know, so, so to the question, how can we have racist Christians? Well, simply put, my nationality or my race is more important than Jesus, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I'm going to read Jesus through that lens. And let's be honest, none of us comes to our faith neutral, right? We have, we have things that have shaped how we think. And, but that's why I think that, you know, we need one another to one of, for one, call out what we have put far more value on than it needs to be or should be in our lives. I think that if, if we yeah. are a Christian community yeah. going to figure this out, we need to be able to say, okay, is that, is that really more important than what it means to love as Christ has loved us? You know, um, I, and, 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 and I, I mean, I'm, I'm simple, man. I, I'm not very complex. When we, we, we discussed talking about this, I said to you, I'm no expert in the area, but it just seems to me that we've got the, the, the cart in front of the horse on a, on a number of things when it comes to how we think about uh, our faith these days. And until we kind of come back to 
Christ as Lord of our life? You know, can we put some of these other things in its proper place? And um, yeah. So uh, let me let yeah. me um, let me let me make a a declaration here. This is going to be a little tongue in cheek. So there's seriousness to this, but I'm going to be be a little little um, a little goofy. I want to activate the big picture training sleeper cells that have access to the finger painting seminar because there were field trainers. We called them regional trainers at the time, this team we were part of. And then there were these district trainers and there was like 80 districts. And then these districts hosted these seminars. And so, okay, think about this. Within the Nazarene church on the USA, Canada region, there's these finger painting seminars out there that have the hands-on elements of what you just described with our first allegiance being to Christ. And there were, there were two things, actually one of them was in a groovy kind of love seminar, but it, it said, if you're, if you're at the Olympics and you're, you're, there's a, there's a hundred, hundred meter, um, sprint and there's a there's an american i'll say american i know you're canadian i'm aware of that um american sprinter and a russian sprinter and you know that the russian is a christian who are you going to root for as a christian are you going to root for the american or are you going to root for the russian that's a christian and it's a stupid question but it's not it's like it starts getting you thinking different. And then in finger painting, this, and this is what I thought of earlier today was, um, whose story is defining my life? Right. And, and you know, we, we would have, I think I still, Stuart, I think I still have, oh, here it is. Check this out. Oh. My, yeah. my book about me. I've got mine on my shelf as well. Yeah. yeah. And so we would have people f- fill these out or we would do it and kind of show them. But then we would, we would say in, in our relationship with Christ, and I know I'm just saying this for anybody that's listening to it. I know, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. But if we, if we believe that the, the meta narrative within scripture about God as creator and we as creation and we're created in his image and we're being remade in Christ, that Christ was sent as, to to begin the rescue operation of creation and the restoration and renewal and that we're a part of that as a part of the new creation then whose story is defining us and so if we take the bible and we do we take the bible and put it inside of our story my story about me or do we take the bible and the and and the bible's covers on the outside of the story right about me and my story is inside of scripture and i think too often my frustration with knowing that trying to live it out but having dissonance within my own life of is my own little tiny narrative trying to define everything like i'm acting like god the first sin or am i really living into this bigger narrative and this bigger story and god's god's big story with my life as christ has invited me to do and i feel like i keep running into people that don't even they they don't even know to think like that and they think that their small story is god's story right and, and, and so instead of accepting the invitation into God's story, they keep inviting God into their story and it doesn't fit. And then I get the partisan stuff and I get the, well, this yeah. is an issue. And, th- 
And so yeah. then the little elements of my story or somebody else's story, I allow to be the defining elements of what I believe and what my faith lens is that I look through. I don't take my faith lens of relationship with Christ and look at everything else. I take my cultural context, my bias, my story, and I look at who Christ is through that and I keep the parts that I'm comfortable with. So when you were talking about all that, all that before, I was thinking about finger painting. So I <laughs> activate all of the finger painting, big picture cells across USA, Canada and the world even, that we need to be talking about does the flag that is a part of the country that, that I'm a citizen of define who I am first and foremost, or does my relationship with Christ right. define who I am and then everything else comes next? Because if I don't have that in that order, well, then we get what we have today. Right. And the right. church becomes a reflection of its culture instead of living into redefining culture with kingdom living and principles. Yeah, my life is way too small to contain God's plan. And um, I think, you know, uh, we need to be liberated from this small salvation narrative that makes it just about me and Jesus and getting, I mean, think about, you know, getting Jesus into inside of my life. You know, it's kind of the language we use and I understand why we do. Yeah. And, and in some ways that makes sense, but it's almost become like God exists to make my life the best life I can have. And, you know, as opposed to I exist to be a part of God's great plan and life for the world. And I, I, I don't know where some of that shift has happened in the United States historically. Um, I know that within uh, apartheid South Africa, the church played a, a very significant role um, that that seemed to be very myopic and very small and focused on particular people. And it was part of the power structure. Right. Uh, but, but the way of Jesus is, is, is a lot more exciting to live into than whatever I can conjure up as the Christian life. And, but it's at the same time, one of the more demanding ways to live as a Christian. When you start to love as Christ loved, you're beginning to live into the big picture and not your small story. When you start to take seriously how Jesus encourages us to see our world and to even love our enemies, you're starting to live a bigger story than your cultural or racial identity. When you start to, to deal with what it means to forgive even those who harm and hurt, now you're starting to embrace the kingdom way in a way that is profoundly powerful and also incredibly costly. And I think part of the reason why we like to keep Jesus within us and small and within my world and framework is because we fear that if we give ourselves so entirely over to God, we're going to lose the things that we hold much dearer than God himself. And, you know, th this idea of uh, value and material things, I think it's Jonathan Edwards who talked about the reordering of our affections. I think the call is upon the church to kind of go, is Christ your first love? You know, does he matter more than anything else? Whatever loyalties you have, whatever 
things you're passionate about. And I know I'm sounding like an old school preacher, but I think they knew what they were talking about right. when they said, if Christ is not your greatest treasure, you're going to settle for things that can't live up to what God wants to do in this world. And you're going to twist and contort yourself to justify why you should spend more time on this and why you shouldn't care about the things that Christ cared about. And so I think on a theological level, God wants to reframe what it means to be a part of the family of God. And he, he does so through Christ in a powerful way that challenges this notion of, you know, just me and Jesus. I think the challenge is for individual people. Indiv well, it's about community, but individual people need challenge to action so that they can come together in community to make change. Right. For race relationship, for race healthy race relationship and, and reconciliation, that, that this isn't about color. But there's no time in the near future that this isn't going to be about race and color because right. there is much to, uh, there's much that cannot be undone. There's much unlearning to do. And I think that individual people's perceptions need challenged in real, in, in sometimes it takes really big ways, but sometimes it needs to be more subtle and in really small ways. And I, I think that there are people, there may be people that, that are still listening to this right now that are going, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not racist. I'm not a part of it. I wasn't, I wasn't born then. I wasn't racist then. Um, uh, I, I don't know about my relatives, but that's not what I'm, but I'm a, but I see individually, Kenny sees, I see, I'm a benefactor of it. I was in South Africa as a little missionary kid, colonizer. I was as, uh, I, I have been as an American citizen in the U.S. without even knowing it. And Stuart, I want to run um, I don't want to cut you off from anything that, that, that you have to say right now, but I've got some stuff I want to run by you because I want to challenge those people in listening to this so that they can recognize that they do have implicit bias and there is racism baked into who they are and they don't even know it. Right. So you got some things you want to, you want to get out there before I do that? No, let's go. Okay. This, this isn't fair. Um, and, and, and maybe I don't, some of these might surprise you, Stuart. I kind of, okay. I, I, I mean, I kind of hope they do. And I kind of, I don't know which one would disappoint me more. So you can't <laughs> lose. Um, but I pulled up, I, I heard this uh, recently in phrases that we say that we don't even know are racist. Right. That are part of our, our common, common speech. And I want to see if you've heard these and then see if, if this, maybe you're like, duh, it's because you're white. You didn't know that. <laughs> but if you're black or brown or, or like, like any other ethnicity, you would have totally known that. For right. instance, master bedroom. Right. Right. You, you knew that. Yeah, I know. I know. The master bedroom refers to where the boss slept and there's, there's you know, the, the master of the house slept, right? And that yeah. implicit in that is, is also the idea that there are slave quarters. <laughs> And the language itself, and we still use it today without even recognizing that that is generated from a culture of slavery. Yeah. Okay. Confession. Yeah. I didn't know that till recently. Never thought about it that way. I, I was taught that term, looked at lots of different houses. Well, which one's the master bedroom? 
deeper confession. I'm right. a volunteer with International Rescue Committee here in the Boise area. Right. And part of my job, part of my volunteer job is when they text me and tell me that they have refugees coming into town that are being, uh, you know, resettled here. Um, I'm trained and I've trained some volunteers with our church and some people in the community. We go get bed frames and mattresses that are all compact and, you know, vacuum sealed. And we go set them up for the refugees. And I walk into these apartments. People aren't in there yet. Um, apartments are blank. The beds are the first thing that go in. And I ask myself, which one's the master bedroom? Because we're going to put the bigger bed in there. And then we're going to put the smaller beds for the kids in the other rooms. And I feel like such an ignorant hypocrite. And now I can't, I can't say master bedroom anymore. And it's not because I can't say it. It's because I don't want to participate in ongoing phrases that perpetuate a, a um, racist mentality. I'm, I got to unlearn, yeah. unlearn it. Here's a, here's a yeah. tech one. Here's yeah. a tech one that I'm not super familiar with, but I recognized it. It just, it says in computer technology, a master or a slave. Tech engineers use these terms to describe components of software and hardware in which one process or device controls another. Right. <laughs> the master or the slave. Um, blacklist and whitelist. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with the whitelist term. I am familiar with the blacklist term of when, you know, somebody's on your blank list, they're on, they're on the blacklist. That's not, right. that's not the list you want to be on. Um, isn't there a TV show called blacklist? Like they're working down through this. There's a US TV show called Blacklist and it's all about spies and stuff. Okay, Stuart, this one, I read this one and I was like, I don't know that I can do this to my friend, Stuart. Because of his love of golf, but he probably already knows it. <laughs> the Masters Tournament. That's right. <laughs> you love golf, but you already know that that is a term that's associated with slavery. Right. Did you know the history behind it? Uh, refresh my mind. So, okay, it was... Uh, I'll let you look into it. It goes back to 1934. That's enough said. How about this one? Peanut gallery. Uh, you may have to clarify that one for me. I think I know what it meant. This, this, is, this is a term that I've grown up with. My parents would say this to me when I was being chippy or a little cheeky or like, you know, just I was being a little, I was being a little lippity or another term we'll get to soon, uppity. Um, and so it's, I'm making unnecessary comments to what my parents are doing or what they're talking about, or I wasn't invited in the conversation and they'd say, Hey, we don't need to hear from the peanut gallery. Right. But what it refers to is the cheap seats that people of color had to sit in that was called the peanut gallery. Right. And the peanut gallery was making too much noise. Right. I didn't know that that came from a racist. Yeah. yeah. How about grandfathered in? Right. Have you heard that one before? I've heard the phrase used. You may have to clarify that one for me. Like why it's racist? Yeah. Yeah. So the legal term broadly refers to grandfather clause adopted by seven Southern states during the reconstruction era. So post civil war in the U S under it, anyone who was able to vote before 1867 was exempt from the literacy tests, property requirements and poll taxes needed for vote. But enslaved black people were not freed until 1865 
when the 13th Amendment passed and weren't granted the right to vote until the 15th Amendment was passed in 1870. <laughs> but that wow. took a while. How about cakewalk? Oh, that's going to be a cakewalk. Did you know that was racist? Now, these are, these are very unique uh, phrases to, I guess, to where you're from. <laughs> do, you, do you think they're specific to the United States? Well, cakewalk, I may have heard, but I've probably only heard it referenced in North America uh, and more particularly probably in the U.S. Well, it's, it, was, it was the masters seeing the slaves uh, doing what they thought was trying to mimic the masters, but they weren't good at dancing. So the slaves, the slaves in their minds were going, we're making fun of our masters at one of their parties and really playing it up. And the masters looked at it and said, man, they're not very good at dancing. They're trying to be like us, but they just can't pull it off. I mean, it, the levels of irony and just. Now, now just, I, 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 think this is, I think this is totally informative. I, the question that looms as you're doing this is that there is obviously a high level of, um, and I think this, this is generated out of what you said earlier, like people would say, I'm not racist, like what is systemic racism? There, there's a high level of actual ignorance to the benefits that has been afforded to a particular class of people that many people still enjoy today. And these kinds of terms reveals that it's more than just language that still benefits and privileges certain people. It alludes to the fact, in my opinion, that it's so, in, it's so ingrained within culture itself, it's so acceptable that unless you have somebody that can help you understand the ways in which it has privileged others, the way in which it still, um, you know, places a category or a perspective on the other, people don't get it, right? Yeah. So, so that's part of it. Like, I, I think that this is an incredible example of kind of saying, just because you didn't realize it, doesn't mean it's not there. And right. that's what I hear all the time, right? People who say, I don't I no know idea. anything about this, right? Yeah, I'm not involved in it. Exactly. The, exactly. But the ignorance is my ignorance of it. You're not ignorant of it. Well, my some black <laughs> brothers and sisters aren't ignorant of it. Right. They're very aware of it. Right. And I'm, I'm having to learn, um, poor me, about these things that I, because I haven't had to deal with them. I haven't had to navigate them. Right. And so I, I can look at that and say, well, that's not my problem because I haven't had, or I could go, wait a minute, they're a human being. Right. Why have they had to deal with that? And I haven't had to deal with that. That's not right. That's, right. that's not fair. Take faith completely out of it. Right. I mean, faith is being used to justify racism, has been for millennia. Yeah. Um, you just referenced this, you know, the South African church. Um, but man, I mean, just pick up a history book in the United States. Couple, just a couple more terms. Uppity was another one. I mean, I've, I've used that before. I didn't know it had racist roots. Um, so maybe I'm not using it in a racist way towards right. people of color. Um, I don't like that term, but I keep hearing black people, Latinx people say people of color. So it must be okay for me to say too. 
but I'm a person of, of color. I looked up the meaning of Caucasian. I'm not Caucasian. I'm, I'm not, I'm not Armenian and like near Russia or whatever. My roots are like in, you know, Western Europe. Um, so Caucasian is actually a horrible, not a horrible. It, there are no derogatory terms for white people. There's not, there's not a four letter sounding emotional evoking word used uh, to describe or, or, or to demean white people. That's, that realization is one of privilege. Right, right. Okay, last one, should have, actually last two, blackball, when someone's blackballed. Have you heard that one? It sounds painful. <laughs> if, if you bear a black mark, you've done something that people hold against you. And so they were actually marked on their skin. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, soul down the river. Right. Why didn't I? I know history. Yeah. Families were torn apart and sold down to the, the plantation down the river. Yeah. I've never thought about that term that way. And I don't use it very often. And there's not a context for me to use it very often. But when I read it, I was like, wait, that comes from racist. So I'm, I'm wondering, kind of hoping that mm -hmm. someone would, would hear some of these terms and then begin to, like I'm trying to do, bless them and curse them at the same time. Think about the things that I'm saying that you're saying and where they come from. Right. And that, and that I have a, res I have a responsibility. It's like when you go to a different culture and you hear a word and you think it sounds really good or somebody kept saying a lot. So you started saying it and you realize later you're cussing somebody out. Don't <laughs> say things that you don't understand, you know, but I didn't know that peanut gallery came from those roots. Right. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know the, those, those terms did that. So I, anyway, maybe, maybe that's, it's a gross understatement of a little activity there. But if you're listening to it and you go, how in the world can that, oh, last one. Uh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger mm. by its toe. Mm. We teach this to children. Mm. I learned this nursery rhyme. Nursery rhyme. Mm -hmm. Comes from very segregated, racist roots um we adopted two uh tuxedo cats a couple of years ago okay they came from a litter of four cats named eeny meeny miny mo my boys are both in a cross country have i told you this story before no it's no, not yeah, long no. sorry you won't have to suffer through it long they didn't like the name eeny and we, we got two of the cats, but one of them was named Mo and my boys are both into cross country. So my oldest son said we should name him Mo Farah because he's my favorite runner. Do you know Mo Farah, Stu? And British citizen, but I think he's from, I can't remember if he's from the Sudan or Somalia or not Somalia, maybe Sudan or Ethiopia. I can't remember which one. Um, repeat his name again. Mo Farah. I'm not Mo sure. I'm not yeah. sure which country is from. Well, I mean, it's yeah. Mo Farah, but I'm sure his full name is Mohammed. Right. But he's from, he's from Eastern Africa. Anyway, so our cat's names are Mo and Farah. But originally, the original litter of kittens was Eeny, Meeny, Miny, and Mo. And I read this today 
about this term. And I'm like, we gave our cats racist names and didn't even know it. You know, you know it's, it means, you know, the, our favorite, favorite runner and everything. Right. But it's so steeped within our language, English, which is the colonizer's language, by the way, from like across the planet. Stuart, I have this thing happening in me, especially within our multicultural global Nazarene church where, and, and I, I don't know if this is white guilt or, or what it is, but I meet somebody from Africa or I meet somebody like from Africa and their first language is French. And I just think about that for 10 seconds. And I meet somebody from South America and their first language is Spanish or Portuguese or from Haiti. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of uh, Haitian um, Nazarene brothers and sisters in, in Quebec. Uh, Language-wise, you can just, you, I mean, it, it works. I don't know how that works out ethnically and racially and everything, but there's, and it's like, oh, if I find somebody that speaks French and we're going to this part of Africa, wait a minute, why do people speak French in Africa? Because people went and stole other people's resources and their land and they did it in the name of the church. Um, the church, let alone my culture, let alone my society, we've got some things to answer for. Yeah. And yeah. in the way yeah. that we do missions, just in our, yeah. not, not necessarily, the way that we do missions, we need to think really, really long and hard about. Well, listen, are we, yeah. you brought up something just fascinating. Um, <laughs> you talk about privilege. Privilege means that I make others speak my language. True. And, you know, like if you think about it, if you think about South Africa's um, apartheid past, when you think about slavery in the United States, slaves weren't given a choice to continue to speak their language. They had to learn the language of those in control and power over them. And, if we want to talk about systemic racism without actually seeing how that even the way in which we expect people to do and to communicate in our preferred language. Yeah. We, we Speak English. Exactly. Right. Um, I feel like this is like episode one of a, of at Me least two. A three at least a three-part. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe the next one will, will well, be a little bit more systematic, but this has kind of felt for me, at least from my end, a little bit more like venting, but maybe there's some good things in there that somebody can take and, and run with. So Stuart, let's, let's, let's wrap it because I think we're, we're, we're overdue here on, right. on closing it out. If I'm going to offer a pivot for somebody to act on in here from my perspective, from my meager perspective, it's just, let's think about the way that we talk and the words that we use and where they come from. Mm -hmm. And challenge, allow yourself to be challenged by one thing, just one thing that you suspect may be a fractional remnant of racist in some way. Hmm. 
and ask Jesus to eradicate that. Right. Right. Because if you do, you will not, I, I cannot stop there. Right. Right. Do one thing that's going to challenge your privileged bias <laughs> and let Jesus have at it. It, so, it sounds like it sounds like something that that is simple to do, but I bet it's a hard thing for a lot of people to think about doing. I suck at it. I'm horrible yeah. at it. Like yeah. I'm sucking eggs with it right now, dude. <laughs> Wait, do you have one? I mean, do you, I, I, I was, I'm offering one. I, do you have one thing you just want to challenge as a, as a pivotal move? Yeah, I, I don't know. This might be too big a shift for some people, but I, I wonder if, if perhaps one of the things that someone can do, can do that, that kind of says, hey, I, I want to take this whole racial injustice thing a little seriously and more seriously than I have. And I want to stop pretending that it's not my problem. You know, it's someone else's problem. I wonder if somebody might be courageous enough to kind of just go and, and, and I right now in, in the pandemic, it's hard, but to maybe worship with brothers from a different race or culture mm. or background or to sit down with somebody or to have a conversation with somebody and just ask them what it's like to live life in their skin. Um, I, I, I just think my, my own life has been dramatically shaped when I have taken the time to get to know people unlike myself yeah. and, and dramatically shaped in a, in, a, in, a, in a good way. And, you know, we need to take that step and and maybe somebody can pivot and instead of you know doing coffee with a group that you know or uh you know maybe just take a chance and and connect with somebody on the other side so to speak if i could use that language it's uh, it's 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 our problem it's our healing it's our right but there's a lot of me stuff i got to get over so i can be good at our there's a lot right. of ice stuff so that I can do we. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right, man. Well, Stu, I don't know if this was anywhere in the realm of what you were hoping for, but this is what happened. <laughs> well, yeah. To we be continued. Want, yeah, we will, we will continue the conversation. Thanks for, for being a good conversation partner. I appreciate that. Oh, man. It's a privilege, my brother. It's a privilege. All right. Okay. Right on. We'll see you. Peace.